Welcome to another episode of the Esports Network podcast presented by Esports Network. Now I'm talking with Matt Edelman. Edelman is the Chief Commercial Officer of Super League Gaming, an organization bringing amateur esports events to communities across the United States. Matt, how are you doing right now? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining me. So I wanted to start with your quick elevator pitch for what Super League Gaming is and what makes it unique in the esports space. Super League Gaming is a leading community bringing amateur esports players together across various game titles, age groups, and skill levels, really giving them a chance to experience their passion for competitive gaming and their interest in getting to know other players who share that passion. We do that through content and content experiences, both digitally and in person, with in-person really being the special nature of the Super League experience that no other company offers in quite the same way or at quite the same scale in venues all across the country um, and and really um, in a way that, that makes each experience feel like a mini esports event. Yeah, what do those events feel like? So predominantly held in movie theaters, at least they were last time I talked to you. I know you've entered in some new partnerships since the last time we spoke. What are the what does a Super League event feel like? Can you set set the stage for me a little bit? Sure, can I? I should maybe start off by saying that we've expanded uh, to your to your point uh, well beyond movie theaters. We formed an exciting partnership with a terrific interactive um, entertainment restaurant operator named Top Golf, which has more than sixty locations uh, throughout the U.S. We also are now running events regularly at Buffalo Wild Wings restaurants, at Dave & Buster's locations, and increasingly at PC gaming centers in a variety of markets uh, throughout the country. All of the events have a few things in common. The first is there is a social component to the experience. We bring players into the space and give them a chance to get to know each other we walk them through some icebreakers so that previous strangers become uh, known players to each other and have a chance to sit down in a more familiar environment than it felt like when they walked in the door. The other uh, consistent component is the gameplay itself. We create interesting formats. Sometimes those formats are very consistent with how individuals play that game when they are at home or if it's a mobile title uh, playing wherever they choose to, you know, to boot up and, and play a particular um, game. Um, uh, but sometimes that format is really designed to encourage uh, camaraderie within uh, an event or a particular venue. Sometimes it is designed to uh, create intense competition either between players in a single venue or between groups of players in competing venues. So the gameplay piece is the other consistent component. And then the third is the content experience. We have a relatively sophisticated way of broadcasting gameplay, both in the venue where players are participating 
and digitally on platforms like Twitch and YouTube. Um, and that broadcast experience, particularly in the venue, makes that space feel like an esports arena. The monitors on the wall are really treated in a way like a jumbotron. And that is one of the standout components that really elevates the experience compared to other uh, amateur esports events. Definitely. It's really interesting concept and event structure really bringing the community esports events because I personally I when people ask me about esports the first thing I tell them is go see an esports event in person and if you can go play in one because the atmosphere is so much different than playing a game online the community aspect of it uh, the talking with people your communication with your teammates is so much better the toxicity is way way down when you actually are face to face with another person and not um, they're not just a username on a screen. So I just think esports in person is just a better experience than it is online. Uh, certainly we agree with you. And a lot of the ways that we describe the benefits of playing with Super League are exactly what you just said. And, and that's something that, that our uh, publisher developer partners recognize. And they appreciate the fact that Super League is investing to build these experiences and to distribute them across communities all over the country because the publishers who own the games themselves are not set up to do that on their own, which means a publisher like uh, Riot Games for League of Legends or a publisher like Supercell for Clash Royale or Epic Games for Fortnite, they are interested in giving local players a chance to be in an environment exactly as you described, where there is no toxicity, where it's really about the positivity of gaming, where it feels welcoming and inclusive, where it feels like you are meeting and spending time with people who share a passionate interest, who could become friends uh, of yours. And, and, and there's a basis for that friendship around that passion. And, and that's really what we focus on. And, and it is the strength of all of those elements that are, uh, that is building the Super League community um, in such an exciting way for us. For sure, and you guys really have been building. I I heard about the Top Golf one, but I didn't know you guys were in Buffalo Wild Wings or Dave and Buster's. So you really are. You've been busy over there, just expanding to all these different venues that are set up well for esports events, but they probably weren't thinking about. It. I mean, Buffalo Wild Wings has an absurd amount of televisions. Top Golf has a TV in every bay, along with different tech capacities, and like you said, uh, and they all have restaurant components as well. So these venues are really set up to host these unique events. But do you, had they been approached with esports events, or were you coming to them for the first time and being like, "Hey, this works perfectly for esports"? Like, what responses have you been getting from the these companies you're coming to with different events? So it's a great question. Each one is a little bit different, but there is one common theme, and that is that gamers, as a broadly defined demographic, which of course people outside of the gaming industry overgeneralize, but mm -hmm. it's still uh, a phrase that's used. All of these companies recognize that gamers are an important segment of the consumer base they want to get into their venues to spend time there, spend money there, and congregate there. They know that a substantial percentage of gamers don't really have that much interest 
in some of the other entertainment or sport programming that these venues offer. David Buster's is a little different because you have the game arcade experience, but Buffalo Wild Wings is broadcasting traditional sports almost all the time on their monitors. There are a lot of gamers who aren't interested in that. Top Golf knows that the the golfer um, as a stereotypical uh, sports um, uh, player is not necessarily going to be a typical gamer. And so they have to find a way to create new experiences in their venues so that it's attractive for gamers to spend time there. Top Golf did a lot of interesting research and determined that a third of their patrons self-identify as gamers. They realized as a result there is an opportunity to add esports into the mix of experiences that you can enjoy when you go into a Top Golf. We spent quite a bit of time discussing how Super League could bring that to life, and thankfully we had a common vision, uh, and they are making a substantial commitment to turning spaces within their venues into esports lounges and really building a whole messaging and marketing plan around helping gamers understand that Top Golf is a place where they are welcome and uh, where they can have um, uh, something special to experience. Um, there are examples and, and similar stories I could share about Buffalo Wild Wings and Dave and Buster's, but that's really the the excitement for us is that all of these venues know that if they make esports a priority, there is a rabid group of consumers who are likely to spend time there um, more frequently. Yeah, there definitely is. And Topgolf really hit a very interesting niche of taking a driving range and gamifying it, basically. And there's a lot of people I know who have zero interest going to a driving range and you know practicing their short game or trying to blast balls off, but they will go to Topgolf because it has all these different mini games and unique games, which is very similar and appealing to people who spend a lot of time playing video games. You have that competition built into it. And so I do think there's a nice bit of overlap. I'm the kind of guy, I love to go play golf, but I know that for many gamers, that's probably not necessarily true. So it's a really great way of bringing in more people and connecting with Top Golf's niche that they've already been filling a little bit by diversifying from the traditional golf audience and then going even further and making these physical games that operate like video games. It's a unique thing Top Golf is doing over there. You're absolutely right, and in fact, one of the exciting parts about the Top Golf partnership is that we are able to offer combined experiences now. So there are people who go to Top Golf who love that gamified driving range experience, who are gamers, and then there are obviously just like you gamers who would enjoy going to a Top Golf and playing golf in that format, who may not realize how much fun it is. So, you know, we're, we're working with them to uh, put packages in front of consumers that combine those experiences and even offer other parts of the Top Golf um, experience uh, to, uh, to them in a customized way, like customized menu items and uh, merchandise and 
even gaming peripherals that we're looking at for the future. So, you know, Top Golf's really making a, a big commitment, and um, we're you know we're stepping stepping through all of that right alongside them. Great. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of these different partnerships with physical venues, but recently you've also had a big partnership come through with Capcom, and that is to bring Street Fighter games to Super League Gaming. So how did that partnership come about? The publisher community in general, as I mentioned earlier, is very interested in fostering esports activity among their player base. There's a lot of research that shows that if players come together in a physical location and play a game that they all enjoy at the same time, they tend to play that game more often. Skill progression happens faster, and they form lasting relationships with uh, other players more quickly. As a result, we're in constant conversations with a multitude of publishers, not just the ones we're in business with already. And Capcom has been one of those publishers. They thankfully have liked uh, seeing what Super League has accomplished in in these other categories of gaming. Um, And we have great respect for what they've done uh, to build Street Fighter into one of the most world-renowned games um, in history. Uh, so as they looked at growing their overall esports strategy and figuring out how they could bring competitive experiences to more of their player base, it was sort of a natural part of the evolution of our discussion for Super League to fit into that strategy. And, and so, you know, our, our recent announcement is going to uh, honor that and, and we're going to bring in-person community experiences, um, grassroots events uh, to Street Fighter Fighter players um, in as many geographies as uh, we can. Uh, And we're going to also launch a national city versus city tournament that mirrors a format we've used with other titles. Yeah, and that's really exciting. And I want to talk about regionalization and how you guys were actually one of the first companies to do regionalization of esports and now it's becoming more of an industry-wide trend but on the street fighter thing does that game pose any issues due to the rating of it and the i would say overly gory nature of street fighter at times is that a concern at all for the company no it really isn't you know the 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 reality for us is we have players of all ages um, we run Minecraft events uh, for players who are um, under, generally under 14, uh, and of course that means in most cases it's their parents who are creating their Super League accounts and uh, bringing you know the, those players to the event. Um, but we also have players in their 20s and 30s and 40s and even 50s. We have 50-year-olds who come to Clash Royale events uh, that we've produced as an example. So the rating of a game really is not a concern for us. It's more a matter of how we market it. Um, what is the right venue that is also comfortable with the rating based on who their audience already is and uh, making sure that the messaging is very transparent. And if there are younger members of the Super League community who um, might have an interest in a more mature title, 
that we're making it very clear um, that it might not be appropriate, you know, for them or we're creating those experiences in a way that is not as accessible to them. So, for example, if we were to um, do something with a very mature title, uh, I don't look at Street Fighter as being as mature as some other uh, titles, um, a more maturely rated title, we might do a quote-unquote after-hours program at a particular venue um, and and run it that way instead of, you know, running it in a, um, on, a, on a Saturday afternoon. Sure, definitely. Having different things that appeal to different groups is crucial in creating successful events. I was just curious, knowing that, you know, you'd started, I think, a little bit more on the amateur, started with Minecraft and League of Legends, so you're definitely expanding your reach a little bit with new partnerships like Street Fighter, that that hits a new demographic that you maybe weren't previously reaching. Yeah, no, I, I think the the interesting part about you know the the gaming industry and the player population, um, which I've really learned a lot about through Super League, is that the demographics from one game game title to the next are if they're not that different. Um, it's because the game generally appeals to players in the same age range. Um, and if they are different, it's more age-based than it is um, demographics-based. So in other words, if there's a game title like Minecraft, it generally will appeal to players under the age of 14. Um, a, a game like League of Legends will generally appeal to players you know, in that sort of 16 to you know, 32 or 16 to 34-year-old range. Then you have a game like Clash Royale, which has an incredibly broad age demographic where there are 10, 11, 12-year-olds who play it. And as I mentioned earlier, there are 50, 52, 55-year-olds who play. Yeah. um, Mobile games have really opened up a uh, unique age range because I think it they help bring in the older generation a little bit who aren't as comfortable booting up a PC or a console, but they're pretty comfortable on mobile. And it's been a really interesting phenomenon to see recently how mobile games have actually, like you said, cap- captured audiences from age of 10 to the age in the 50s. It's really unique in gaming. It's, it's one of the most exciting areas of growth that's happening in, uh, in gaming and particularly competitive gaming. Mobile has opened up uh, a tremendous set of opportunities for publishers to grow their player pools, and certainly from Super League's perspective, it opens up a lot of possibilities on the venue side. It's much easier for us to run a mobile esports event in a venue where there are not PCs already installed than it is for us to ask players to bring their PCs to that venue. So I think, you know, with, with uh, the way things are developing, you will see Super League bringing in more mobile titles or mobile um, competitions for a title that has that is on a mobile platform in addition to being on console or on PC. Uh, so it, it, it's a, it is going to open up the market, and we uh, see a pr- pretty big opportunity to help lead that growth. Yeah, that's really interesting. When we talked, oh, I think it must have been probably a little less than a year ago, I think it was last summer, you described uh, Super League as the Little League of Esports. 
With the wide age range you're catering to now, do you think that's still an accurate description of the company? It is if you are able to sort of um, not assign, which is not really natural, but if you were not to assign an age to the reference of Little League, then uh, it still is an apt description. Another way of putting that is we are the equivalent of Little League for game titles that appeal to younger game players like Minecraft. We are the equivalent to college intramural sports for college-age gamers. We're the equivalent to adult softball league for players in their 20s and 30s and, and 40s, etc. Yeah, if you can if you can reach all those groups and be that for each of those groups, you definitely should. And because you were the first in this space or one of the first in this space, you have the ability to do that. So I think that's a, a smart way of scaling. It's an interesting to think about, having one company really be doing all those different amateur events that comprise so many different companies in traditional sports. Well, one of the reasons it's, it's achievable is because some of the foundational elements are consistent across the different age groups. So, for example, each eSports experience needs a field to be played on. It needs field space. So, as I was saying earlier, Top Golf represents field space that can be used for multiple game titles. It doesn't have to be and would never need to, would never be designed to be um, for one game title only. The monitors on the wall, the infrastructure, the seating, um, you know, the, the machines that they put into those spaces, whether they're consoles or, or otherwise, they can all be used for multiple games. So the field space is very flexible um, at Top Golf. It's going to be for mobile titles and console titles. Uh, for a PC gaming center, it's going to be, of course, PC-based titles, less likely that will run mobile events at a PC gaming center. It's not well-designed for somebody who is just playing on their phone. So one element that allows us to scale is field space that we are actively going and trying to um, you know, occupy and, and uh, lock up through interesting partnerships. Well, field space can be used for multiple age groups and multiple game titles without much of a lift. The other piece is technology. So our technology platform that really brings players together um, in a very flexible way and allows us to design multiple types of competitive formats. The technology allows us to run the event and it allows us to create the content and broadcast experiences I was describing earlier, that technology is also flexible and applicable to multiple game titles. There is a, some customization that's required for each title, but the more titles we bring into our portfolio, the less customization is required for every new one because we keep adding to the platform and the feature set. So it, that's another piece that allows us to expand um, into these multiple age groups across multiple titles. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. There's also, into the age thing, obviously the field space, like you said, that's really important. You can't <laughs> can't play a soccer game on a baseball diamond. It doesn't really work unless it's, you know, cross-designed. But in esports, you also have the fact that, you know, there's 12-year-olds out there who could absolutely destroy me in most video games. In fact, I'm sure I'll play Rocket League later and get destroyed by somebody who's 14 and 
So you can play across ages in the way that a 30-year-old can play a 14-year-old, and it's a fair battle when compared to traditional sports. Obviously, that wouldn't be... You have to delineate based on age, which makes... You know, every little league has a different level, and baseball little league has a different level for every, like, two-year or grade level. And in esports, that isn't necessary. You can have... Uh, probably at some point, but it's probably delineated by games more than it is their skill level. But you, we've seen kids as young as 11 and 12 be on top of their respective games already. So you don't need to as much in esports. You don't need to separate based on age, which is another benefit, I, I think, to the Super League model. You're absolutely right. To, to us, esports is the ultimate inclusive sport. You do not have an advantage based on strength, size, height. You don't have an advantage based on um, you know any type of, of life experience. Um, you are able to be great um, no matter what if you want to spend the hours trying to be great. It is true that at some point as you get older, your reaction time slows down Mm -hmm. and you're at a disadvantage compared to younger players. But at the pro level where that really matters, um, you know, you see uh, age limits for pro players. On the amateur side, that doesn't exist, right? There is not necessarily that big of an advantage for a younger player compared to a slightly older player because the level of, of skill is just not as precise as you see at the pro level. And mm-hmm. as a result, it is uh, esports is sort of the, the ultimate equalizer as well as being the most inclusive sport that exists. You know, there is um, a lot of um, enthusiasm around esports because of that. That's one of the reasons we have been able to um, attract more women to Super League um, mm-hmm. events than you would typically see um, identifying themselves as females when they play online. You know, you mentioned the toxicity issue. Uh, so there is an enormous amount of toxicity in online gameplay. When people come together in person, that disappears. There's no longer a veil of anonymity. So you return to being a good human being. Your citizenship um, in person does not follow necessarily what can be poor digital citizenship. Um, But as a result, that means that we're proving by the fact that women who are good players are coming to our events, we're proving that esports is already inclusive. It's just not necessarily evident to everybody yet because there have not been events, in-person events, at the scale that we're developing. Yeah, and these in-person events are, are so important, and, like, the toxicity problem in esports is still just horrible. It's just a problem, but uh, that's mostly in online gaming, but we've seen some women break through, and I think as more and more women break through to the top level of their respective esport, looking at people like Gaguri in the Overwatch League, like Karma in Rocket League. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but the NBA 2K League has its first 
uh, female player at the top level. As more and more of these women start breaking through, do you think we can maybe see the tide start shifting a little bit with that toxicity? Or is that something that's just always going to be inherent in online gameplay? I would love to be able to uh, predict better <laughs> digital behavior. Um, I, I'm not sure that I could be that bold. I, I think as a result, esports will continue to grow very quickly through in-person experiences like the ones that we offer because the tolerance for that toxicity will only diminish. Mm -hmm. And if, if players have the opportunity to play their game of choice and to enjoy their passion and to be around people who aren't going to treat them poorly, I think they'll play on balance compared to what they're doing today in physical environments as opposed to only digital environments. Definitely. So let's talk about some of those physical environments. Uh, that's really been a, a big trend in esports. Esports used to be so digitally centered. You'd play from your computer and, you know, places like Korea had PC bangs that you could play in. And now it's finally shifting with the Overwatch League now in its second season. We've seen them expand and they're moving to home cities. They just recently moved or held some events in Dallas the first time they left L.A., and next year, they're supposed to move all their games to home cities. We've also seen the Call of Duty World League has just sold five spots, so they'll be moving to a model like that. But Super League was actually one of the original companies. Did you predate the Overwatch League with your regional franchises? Sure we sure did. We were the first company to um, have a city-based, uh, geogra geographically branded um esports program where we set up uh, teams in, in different cities. We, we were the we were the OG in that, um, in that category. Yeah, it's so... I remember seeing all your logos and you had these different branding for all the different cities made up and I was like, oh my God, this looks... And this was, again, pre-Overwatch League, so that was something I'd never seen before in esports. And you had all these different logos with these different names and remember I talked to Ann Hand, the CEO of Super League, about it once, and we were just geeking out about our favorite logos for like 10 minutes because it's just so cool to see that personal representation of different cities. It feels like the traditional sports we've all spent, or most of us have spent time consuming, to see esports take on that model was awesome back then, and it's still really cool to see. And I'm this experiment from the Overwatch League, I'm just as a fan hoping it goes well because that's eventually the model I would love esports to reach. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I think it'll be hard for esports um, at the pro level to um, develop the level of fandom that you see in offline sports without some type of geographic affiliation. I'm not sure if every professional league is going to embrace that out of the gate because it may not be the highest priority for making the professional esports league for any particular game successful and uh, a financial um, uh, financially viable over time, meaning turning these leagues into profitable components of, of a publisher's business. Um, 
but I do think that over time there that is going to be the direction that things go. It's amazing that um, Overwatch is pioneering that at the pro level. We're committed to it at the amateur level. Uh, we are going to be launching additional teams as our geographic uh, footprint becomes more comprehensive within the U.S. and then eventually internationally. Um, and, and you know, we're doubling down. We see it work. We see the affinity. We see the passion. We see that sense of belonging that's created for the players, the pride that they exhibit when they're playing on behalf of their hometown. Mm. Um, so we're big believers. How many cities are you in right now? We're at 16 branded city clubs, although we are now operating in about 30, almost 32 markets around the country. That's awesome. So what are those, bring, let's go into the city versus city tournaments, because that's when you really represent those city tournaments. How many different esports do you hold those city versus city tournaments in? And how do those, how does the atmosphere at one of those events maybe differ from an event at a, just a, um, like a Top Golf or a Dave and Buster's? Is there, a, is there a different feel when you're, when you've got a city on your back and you're playing for that? There is. You're, you're really smart to ask that question and to point out the even potential for there to be a difference. So right now we run City Chance programs um, across three game titles, Clash Royale, League of Legends, and Minecraft. Street Fighter will be added to that, and we hope you know, to be able to expand um, uh, in, into other titles um, in the future. Um, and there is a difference, and one of the differences is that the players who are on, uh, who enter the City Champs experience, uh, part of that experience is getting to wear a jersey, an esports jersey designed um, by Super League, unique to each season for each title. And that's part of what you wear when you walk into the venue. Uh, and that just feels different to your point. You have the city on your back. That means you're playing on behalf of something bigger than yourself. Uh, People generally respond to that with a little bit of extra energy, a little bit of a uh, more, a little bit more competitive fire in their belly, a little bit more spirit, and and, and it also creates um, an immediate bond with other players in the room, even if you've never met them before. So now you're walking into a venue and you are playing in partnership with everybody in that room, as opposed to are non-city versus city um, tournaments and events where you might be playing against the other people in the room or you might be playing as an individual um, or you might be playing as part of a team but not necessarily um, against uh, individuals or teams that are in different venues. Yeah, and I, I asked that question because I, I know that feeling from my time playing traditional sports. There's just something different. Back when I was in high school, you know, once you put on your high school jersey, you're playing for a bigger part of a whole, and it feels way more team-centric, way more unified, way more community-focused when you have that unifying presence versus playing a pickup basketball game or something like that. When you wear that other name, it just it adds something to the experience of playing a sport or an esport. I haven't had the ability to play an esport like that while, while representing a bigger organization, but 
Maybe if I keep practicing my Rocket League, I, you guys add that. That can be something in my future. The good news is you don't even have to practice. Remember, all skill levels. So that is good. As news. soon as we, you know, as soon as we possibly end up with with Rocket League as a partner, you will be one of the first to know, and we'll make sure that even if we're not active uh, where you live, we'll get you to an event. And you know, you don't have to necessarily practice beforehand, other than for pride. Well, pride's still important to me, so I'll be sure to practice. Um, I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to I have to check the schedule. I'm currently in a city without a Top Golf, but uh, I'm headed up to Portland for a week. And if the if Top Golf is holding an esports event or there's anything with Super League Gaming, I'm definitely going to have to go check it out. We would love to have you uh, have you have you attend anytime you're uh, you're you're in town at the right time in the right town at the right time. I appreciate that. I'll make sure to try and make that happen. So that was every question I had. I think we covered all the different topics I wanted to ask you about. But if there's anything I didn't cover or we didn't cover in our conversation that you want to say about the Super League model, the company, what you've got upcoming, I wanted to give you the ability to, you know, have a platform. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, look, we had a, a great conversation. You you covered so many parts of the esports ecosystem and and you know really have a terrific feel for what makes our business exciting and what makes the super league experiences so attractive to gamers uh, i don't think that you know i could add anything you actually um even you know made some of the you know the points about what we do uh sound better than sometimes i make them sound so you, you, you really get it um and it's a pleasure to talk to you and i you know look forward to continuing conversations down the line when we have news to share or when you're just interested in a discussion around what's happening in uh the amateur space uh, at large awesome yeah i've i've loved this come day i mean this is the third or fourth interview i've done with people with you guys because you're you know, the, the amateur focus is so important, the community focus of eSports, the uh, taking out toxicity from it. They're all just really important things to my idea of what I want eSports to look like in the future. So love talking about Super League Gaming. Really thank you so much for coming on the podcast, taking the time, and uh, let's talk again soon. I enjoyed this. All right. Take care. All right. Take care, Matt. Bye-bye. That was Matt Edelman, the CCO of Super League Gaming. They're holding events in Top Golf. They're holding events in Net Level Movie Theaters. They're holding events in Dave and Buster's and Buffalo Wild Wings. They are really holding events in basically any venue that has TV screens, I guess restaurant amenities, and that's about it. So 16 different cities they're available in. Uh, they're all major U.S. cities, so if you think that applies to you, it quite possibly does. Unfortunately, Portland is still not one of them, but hopefully is soon. So check out Super League Gaming. If you want to get a more community-focused aspect of esports, they're a great place. I mean, there isn't a ton of options out there for amateur gamers to play in a community, play in a venue without just getting 
absolutely demolished by people who are just way, way better than you in random open tournaments. So Super League's a really interesting company for that reason. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt to learn more about Super League Gaming. A couple more podcasts coming up this week. Next one is with the architecture firm designing the Team Vitality Gaming House, Gaming Facility, Gaming Studio in Paris. So they are designing a new facility right in the heart of Paris, France, one of the you know most recognizable cities on earth. And we're talking about esports architecture, what goes into designing a physical esports venue for a team, and Team Vitality. And their Team Vitality stated goal is to be the leading French esports team. So talking to the architecture firm designing that esports space. I think that'll be a really interesting conversation, and that'll be coming out later this week, possibly on Monday, depending on how other interviews stack up. And the last interview that is on the books is Nielsen Ratings. So talking to the GM of Nielsen Esports about how the company that is tracked, that does all the tracking for traditional linear television, how they are tracking esports viewership and what difficulties are posed tracking things through YouTube, Twitch, Mixer, all track viewers differently. And that's even different than how Nielsen tracks viewers for TV. So cutting through those different viewership numbers and delivering the viewership that brands and advertisers need to keep spending money in esports is the subject of that Nielsen interview. And if you listen to our last one, you'll know that Nielsen interview is on my broken computer, which is a brick because it has water damage. But I'm getting that fixed and I'm going to take all the data off of it. And so that should be happening in the next couple of days And then that Nielsen podcast will be ready to go. So, architecture firm designing the Team Vitality facility in Paris. And Nielsen ratings, looking at esports viewership. That's coming up. Previous podcast, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, love if you went back, listen to some other ones we've done. We did Women in Esports, where I covered some of the top women competing competing in their highest level of respective esports. I've got interviews with WSOE Commissioner Christian Bishop about bringing the title belt format to esports. I covered esports medicine with a doctor who's working with Magic Gaming's care team about carpal tunnel, posture, core strength, and the different physical aspects and mental health aspects of competing in esports. So if you enjoyed this Esports Network podcast, I really appreciate you listening. Please drop us a rating. Uh, hit that subscribe button. Oh yeah, I'm a YouTuber now. Hit that subscribe button. Jam it. Jam the subscribe. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not that. But actually, it does really help us considering we are a fairly new podcast. Oh, and hopefully there's more of you soon because we have just put up an ad in Times Square. Yes, that's right. Esports Network is in the most famous advertising area on earth there is a massive billboard so if you're in new york try and find us amongst it's like playing where's waldo with advertisements out in times square but esports network is there and we're live on start engine if you have uh if you have some money you want to invest in an esports company our ceo mark thimig has 
really passionate about the esports space and he has a lot of great ideas about what work we can do in here. So we are live on Start Engine. If you want to get a piece of this company and read about a lot of the really interesting things we have coming up. This was aspect one, really, was esports podcast, but esports pro, which we're doing media training. We've got a network of freelancers being built out covering esports news. So if you want to learn more about the company and maybe invest some of your hard-earned dollars, uh, esportsnetwork.com. There's a link right on the top of the page to the start engine. That's all for this episode of the Esports Network podcast. Again, appreciate all our listeners. Thank you. We're building the audience quickly here, and I appreciate all of you listening.